today it's just it's seen as a respectable thing to be a theist. Um, and there are a number of atheists like Thomas Nagel and others who will say, you know, I'm very uncomfortable that a number of my colleagues at the best schools are committed Christians or theists. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Good Theology Podcast brought you, brought to you, excuse me, today by our presenting sponsor, Dwell Bible. Since launching in 2018, Dwell's mission has been to help Christians rediscover the ancient practice of listening to scripture, which I highly recommend through their beautiful digital experience. Dwell offers more than 20 handpicked voices across 11 translations, New American Standard, NIV, King James, ESV, and the International Children's Bible, and lots more. Now Dwell has built a platform to help pastors and leaders. So if you're a pastor or a church leader and you're listening to this podcast, listen up, because they have a platform now to help keep people rooted in God's word every day, the people that you're leading and shepherding. You can invite your church with easy-to-use tools and share built-by-you scripture playlists and plans to encourage reflection on last Sunday's sermon or keep up with your church's Bible reading plan, wherever they find themselves in that. Dwell offers a 30-day trial on all new accounts, and you can get started by going to dwellbible.com slash good, or texting the word good to 39383. Again, that's dwellbible.com slash good, or texting the word good to 39383. And we are grateful to Dwell. Thank you so much for sponsoring our show. We love you guys. I personally use the app and do find it very, very helpful to listen to scripture, uh, which is wonderfully supplemental to reading it as well. So today I am here joined by everybody's favorite person, the one and only David Campbell. David, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> Apart from having a cold. Uh, you sure it's not COVID? Well, you never know these days. I, I caught it in Nashville visiting the Theos crowd. Oh, it just definitely COVID then. <laughs> uh, and we are also joined by Corey Stevenson, who is a friend of David Campbell's and now a friend of mine. Corey, so good to have you on Good Theology, man. Welcome. Yeah, it's great to be here. Good to see you guys. So Corey is joining us today because we have uh, a unique episode. Normally we talk about all things faith and culture, mm. and I'm sure certainly this conversation will delve into some of that as well, uh, but with a specific twist because uh, Corey uh, has a master's in philosophy, a master's in theology, and a uh, emphasis, a focus, a passion on the traditional apologetics realm. And so we're going to try to delve into that um, that subject today and, and talk about some, some apologetic things. Yep. So if you're into that, um, you're really going to enjoy today's conversation. So Corey, why don't you kick us off, man, and just share a little bit about, uh, how this became your passion. Maybe tell us, you know, an abbreviated version of your, yeah. your journey. Yeah. Let's spend 40 minutes on that, shall we? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> believe, believe it or not, I've done episodes with people before and, and almost the entirety of the episode becomes their story. Yeah. So I've learned my lesson of like, could just condense it. If you have a little horn or a button you can press, if I'm not, if I'm not quick <laughs> enough, just uh, interject. I'll, I'll try to do a sound of it, yeah, yeah. which I'm not great yeah. at. All right. Uh, yeah. A little bit about my story. Um, I grew up in a nominal Christian home. 
Um, my parents went to church growing up, but it was just tradition for them. Um, so there wasn't much in the home. Um, it was more so my extended family that impacted me, my aunt especially. Uh, they, uh, church was more important to them. They had a, a, a life of faith. Um, so I started going to church more consistently in uh, junior high and high school. Um, I was baptized um, around junior high and started to take my faith more seriously. Um, of course, going to church um, once a week and then being immersed in a secular public school, you know, playing video games and watching TV shows didn't have the, the most impact on me. Um, but uh, <laughs> there were a number of people who um, poured into my life. Um, uh, one lady in particular started uh, Bible study with, uh, with us. So, um, yeah, I began to take it more seriously in high school. Um, but, of course, like so many, um, being in largely a post-Christian world, you're going to meet up against people with differing views. Like, hey, you believe in God? Like, that's weird. Like, isn't God an old man in the sky? Or what about evolution? Like, so these things um, naturally came up uh, with with uh, fellow students. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, I don't know how it happened. I want to say it was providential, but I remember Googling um, arguments for God's existence or something like that. Um, and I remember coming across one of my heroes and one of the people I got to study with um, at Biola doing philosophy, William Lane Craig. Mm-hmm. who um no big deal no big deal yeah yeah he's a, <laughs> um he's kind of a big name in this world um but i came across him and uh started watching some of his debates and and during my spares uh in high school i would listen to his defenders podcast and this is like you know what who who has a sunday school um lesson where they're talking about you know timelessness and, and arguments for god's existence so i would listen to his his apologetics systematic mm-hmm. theology uh, uh, stuff. And, uh, so you have kind of a, a, a natural uh, proclivity towards this. It, it, it's something that naturally interests you. Yeah, well, you know, it was around that time I started asking the big existential questions. And I thought they were so weird. I thought I, well, I, thought I was weird, to be honest. I remember talking to my uncle, who was, who was well-read. He, he was one of the Christians at my church. I mean, I grew up going to a low church, um, largely evangelical. Um, but he was a well-read guy and, uh, he, uh, I remember telling him about these things like, Hey, like, wow, well, you know, like, why does it matter? I, I make my bed, I do, do go about life and I, and I come back and I do the same thing over Like where, 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 what's, what's this about? Like, where's it going? Like if God doesn't exist, you know, does my life have objective meaning and purpose? Is it going anywhere? Or, um, so I started asking all these big questions, um, which are, you know, if, if you read through the Bible, you find that in things like Ecclesiastes is right there. Um, mm-hmm. um, so I started thinking more about apologetics and stuff like that through just this existential sense of, you know, uh, hungering for God and, and and realizing that it really makes a difference if God exists or not for my life. So mm-hmm. that was that was kind of my, my opening. And um it was one of those things in public school where I, I didn't have really an outlet for that. And it, it's kind of a shame that we don't teach philosophy, you know, in, in schools. Um, and maybe some high schools will have a philosophy class, but I just, I kept it to myself. It's, 
it didn't seem like these were the sort of questions that you're permitted to ask. No one was really talking mm-hmm. about them. So you might go to a, um, a religious studies class and I, I took one and I, I remember thinking, well, it's, it's all, you know, it seems relativistic. That was the, you know, the, the teacher's take. And so there weren't many mm-hmm. classes where I could ask these questions. So I had to kind of do it on my own. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can start off just by, can you just ground people in what is apologetics? Cause yeah. maybe some people are hearing that word and they're like, why are we apologizing for, for Christianity? Yeah. Yeah. What right. Are we, yeah. What are, so what, what is apologetics no one, all about? No one wants to do that. You know, no one wants to do that. That's <laughs> what I'm about. Uh, yeah. Apologetics simply is giving a reasoned defense for, um, for what you believe. I mean, that comes from first Peter, always be prepared to give mm-hmm. a reason for the hope that is within you. Uh, the second part is really important though, the gentleness and respect. Because we should be living a certain life, you know, that manifests certain things to people, onlookers. But yeah, it, it's really just, it's, it's, it's giving reasons for what you believe, being able to articulate, um, your faith. And, and really I would say it's connected with philosophy, namely, um, you know, being concerned about knowledge, uh, uh, um, knowing what you believe and why. Um, just thinking about your faith, really. You can just, it's as simple as that. Just thinking well about your faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Which as comes up all the time on our podcast, you know, what yeah. we think and what we believe is inextricably connected to how we behave and Absolutely. the choices that we make and, yeah. and how we choose to live. So the two can't be separated. David, is there anything you want to ask before we jump into uh, the the brunt of this conversation or anything you want to add? No, I, I just like to know just a tad more of, or I, I'd like for the people listening to know a tad more of Corey's story. What happened to him after he finished all this in high school? And mm. uh, where did he go? What did he do? What did he learn? Uh, all in several minutes. <laughs> Everything. That's like the, the question you get after, um you know, taking a block of that. What did you learn? One one thing. Like it's all kind of it starts growing together. And I can't just draw one. Yeah. Anyway. Just justify your student loans right one, now. One thing. Yeah. One one statement. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll um, give a bit of an overview. Yeah. Um, so where I left off, um, I'm starting to get into apologetics and, and and listen to some stuff by people like Lonely Craig, uh, J.P. Moreland came up. He was another professor um, that I studied with, um, big name in the, wow. in the apologetics yeah. um, community. Um, and um, so it was during that time I, I I started to think, hey, I need an orientation for my life. If you know, it seems that I'm being prepared to go and get a job, a career, but how does that intersect with vocation? How does that you know, intersect with a, a bigger picture, the kingdom of God, or am I just, you know, making money for myself? Like, how is it connected with something bigger than myself? So I decided to go to Bible college for a year and just get um, some time to think more about my faith and develop that. And I ended up, well, I went to Heritage, um, and, and Dave, of course, is connected with, with Heritage College and Seminary. Um, and during that time, I just decided to do a degree. Yeah, after my first year, I was like, this stuff's awesome. This is important. Um, and uh, so I stuck with it. Uh, great time there. And uh, I came across um, um, Biola's uh, philosophy program. 
and being impacted again by people like William Lane Craig and JP and seeing JP Moreland, seeing that they taught there and that it was in California, which is a huge win. You know, I got to get study with some of my heroes and, and, and live in California. So that was a no brainer. So uh, I took out a couple of loans and went down there and some of the best, <laughs> <laughs> some of the best years of my life. Uh, um, yeah. And, um, I mean, I, I could get into later some of the stuff that, um, I thought about or areas of mine, but, yep. uh, we can get back yep. to that later. But, um, when I moved back, um, uh, from, from bio and that, that time just really strengthened my, my, my faith. And I'm so grateful. You know, the, the joke mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, do you think deeply about unemployment? You know, you have a philosophy to do that. Right? <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know. I um, I'm currently not teaching in that in that in that sphere. I'd like to, but it is it has grounded my faith and made me a better person. Um, so I'm so thankful for that time. Um, Great, yeah, yeah, it's awesome, mm-hmm. awesome. Well, I'm sure more of your story will come into play and and the things that you are most passionate about yeah. while you're studying this. Um, will naturally come up in conversation. So let, let's start here. What are what are some of the most exciting things that are happening in the apologetics world, mm-hmm. specifically that have bearing on maybe some ideas that, that people just kind of, you know, every ordinary, everyday ordinary people like myself, maybe there's ideas that are kind of traded in the world that we just take for granted as true yeah. or... Um, maybe we just don't think deeply about because we're scared to think deeply about them. Yeah. Maybe they might undermine our faith. So what is exciting in the apologetics world right now in terms of discoveries, what's being talked about yeah. and how can that help us uh, grow, grow in our own faith? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in general, again, I, I like to connect apologetics to philosophy. So I'm going to um, bring these two uh, into play with one another. Um, Great. But there has been a renaissance um in uh, in the english speaking world uh with regards to philosophy um over 50 years ago um it was simply not something you would take seriously god philosophy religion um uh theological issues um there was a philosophy in place having to do with language um and what counts as as, as knowledge that uh, um, kept that out of the room, so to speak. And so a big thing has been the collapse of that philosophy. And today we have um, top presses like Oxford Press, Cambridge Press, who are not only publishing um, stuff related to philosophy of religion, but theology, um, even stuff on mm-hmm. like heaven or, or, oh, geez, all kinds of stuff. So that's pretty remarkable that, that, that um, leading Ivy League universities now are, publishing high level stuff in the English speaking world related to philosophy, um, analytic theology. Um, um, so that's pretty big. Um, and what, what led to that? Say more about that. Like what was it 50 years ago that caused that dividing wall? I'm assuming, I'm assuming what you're saying is that there was some kind of separation in academia that disallowed, disallowed, uh, certain, truths i suppose or certain subjects from even being entertained in an intellectual way is that what you mean yeah of course um of course um yeah this this philosophy uh is known as um it's a kind of verificationism but it's called logical positivism 
Um, and it was a philosophy which tried to stipulate uh, what is required for a statement to be meaningful. And it happened to um, leave out a lot of stuff that's important for philosophy and theology. Uh, um, so statements having to do with the existence of God, the nature of God were thought to be meaningless, uh, not just uh, mm. false, but meaningless. Um, of course, this philosophy uh, was shown to be incoherent because its own criterion of meaning couldn't be established by its own philosophy. Um, so uh, it kind of it kind of imploded, and a number of philosophers um, were key in that. A uh, number of Christian philosophers um, coming out of the the demolition of that philosophy um, in the wake of that paved the way for people like uh, Alvin Planning Alvin Planninga. Um, very influential philosopher. Um, he's done so much in the field. Nicholas Wolterstor, um, William Alston, figures like that. Um, so, um, today it's just, it's seen as a respectable thing to be a theist. Um, and there are a number of atheists like Thomas Nagel and others who will say, you know, I'm very uncomfortable that a number of my colleagues at the best schools are committed Christians or theists. Um, so, um, we can get pretty nerdy about it, uh, about that, um, that kind of current philosophy, but uh, I think that's some pretty, pretty important to highlight. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So thinking people the you know, the upper echelon of our, our most educated in that realm, it's, it's become a respectable thing to claim faith yes. in a transcendent being. Absolutely. And this was simply yeah. like people like I, I'm trying to, I mean, obviously I wasn't alive during that time, so I don't have a chance, but like uh, when you read some of these people who did come out of that, it's just night and day how, what the landscape was like, what the culture, the mm-hmm. intellectual culture is like. Um, mm-hmm. You just could not talk about this stuff. It was just faux pas. It was so things. So what, what shifted there? What, what, what made it possible so that I can say, I believe in God and have there's there's room for me at the academy. Yeah, maybe not everybody respects me, but at least I'm not totally discredited as a clown. Yeah, a number of things. Well, one was, and again, this is the English speaking world because we could talk about other mm-hmm. streams of philosophy like the continental and and so forth. Um, so this is this is more the English speaking side, the the so called analytic stream of of philosophy. Um, but um, like I said, it was the collapse of this. Philosophy, logical positivism, which is seen as incoherent um, and unduly restrictive. So it was the the, the falling apart, uh, the bursting of a bubble, and in that new life was breathed um, by just rigorous Christian thinkers. So really, what it was was it was a collapse of a certain way of thinking, um, Mm -hmm. a spirit, if you will, and from that, just really good. Christian philosophers coming in, and so people like Alan Plantinga, who who began to like for him, he began to argue or articulate a view that that belief in God is what is called properly basic, um, which means okay. that you don't have to have evidence per se. Not everything that is reasonable to believe um, rests on, on on evidence. So he was trying to argue that belief in God could be. Um, justified or warranted without uh, explicit arguments. And again, that was something um, that that was something that had a, um, 
um, what would you say, um, that was stipulated by kind of philosophy. You need to have explicit arguments um, or something. And so Plantinga just said, no, I don't think, I don't think that's right. No. And he are, <laughs> articulated that extremely well. So that was a big thing. Um, that's called reformed epistemology, um, which kind of became a movement. Um, another thing was um, people beginning to re-articulate classical arguments for the existence of God. So people like Richard mm-hmm. Swinburne is a big figure. Um, William Craig uh, brought back the Kalam cosmological argument. So um, mm-hmm. that was very important as well. Uh, uh, Christian thinkers really... Um, bringing back, reviving these older arguments for the existence of God and, and showing that uh, they haven't been defeated by people like Hume and Kant. Um, mm-hmm. and, well, let's talk about uh, some of those then, because I have a feeling that maybe a lot of our audience aren't familiar with some of the uh, old arguments for the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've heard the term, the uh, Kalam cosmological argument mm-hmm. uh, made famous by, by Bill Craig, but... Um, I think it's still worth talking about. And what are some others? Cause that can help people. So uh, why don't you share some of those with us? Yeah. Um, so there are a number. Um, I have a book over here. It's uh, two dozen or so arguments for the existence of God. It, it actually came from a, hmm. a colloquium with, uh, with Alvin planning. So there are quite a few. Um, so it's kind of, you got to figure out what, what, uh, what strikes you, what, what, uh, what seemed most persuasive, but uh, there are a number. Um, Cosmological arguments are back in. Cosmological arguments are arguments which argue for the existence of God from uh, the cosmos or universe, various features mm-hmm. of the universe. Um, of course, this goes right back to Aquinas um, and various Muslim thinkers um, mm-hmm. as well. Um, so there are arguments from contingency, um, which would argue that uh, there must be a necessary being or ground of uh, being, which accounts for um, contingent uh, facts. So, for example, um, mm-hmm. everything around us doesn't seem like it has to exist. Um, you know, the book on this table here um, doesn't have to exist. Uh, I could burn it, destroy it. Um, and so when you, you begin to look about the world, you're going to see that everything that we're in contact with is characterized by this. It's, it's contingent. It didn't have to be. Possibly it could, it could fail to exist or not exist. And so the question is what, what mm-hmm. accounts for why there is something rather than nothing? And really this is, you could say the deepest metaphysical issue. Why, um, does something exist rather than nothing? Um, mm-hmm. and, um, it doesn't just stop with the things around us, but, Universe itself just seems to be um, um, an aggregate of contingent things. So, what accounts for for that? Is just a brute fact, um, or is there a ground of being that all contingent things participate in or depend on? So that there, that can get pretty technical, but I'm just trying to flush that out. Um, and a number of these arguments do begin in experience, and so a number of people might be able to connect with that. Um, you know, just the, the sheer gratuity of things. Like, why? Why does like things seem so ephemeral? Um, and and why, why is that the case? Is it all just brute, or is there a paradigm existing? Is there something that everything everything depends on? And I am that I am, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so is that something like 
I think can please correct me if I get this wrong, but the Kalam cosmological argument stated, you know, as something like everything that exists has a cause, the universe exists, therefore the universe must have a cause. Mm -hmm. Is it that notion like you, you're working your way backwards because everything that is doesn't have to be, it exists because something made it to be. Yes. Um, okay. Well, there, yeah. there are differences. So again, I, I pointed out that co cosmological arguments are really a family or cluster of arguments. So the Kalam cosmological mm -hmm. argument and I'll just lay it out so people know. Um, it has three premises in Craig's uh, uh, format. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe mm -hmm. began to exist. And three, therefore, the universe has a cause. And from that, mm -hmm. you try to articulate what that cause must be um, from the universe we need to explain. So if the universe is matter and energy space and time if that all came into being then we need a spaceless timeless uh cause which set it in motion so this argument really um um tries to argue for a first cause um mm -hmm. on the basis of their the impossibility of there being an infinite regress so there must be a um a first domino if you will something of that sort there well while other arguments cosmological arguments don't require a beginning. Um, so again, in, in, in Craig's version, he's brought in some of the scientific evidence as well. If people, people might not know this, but um, there's been um, a huge uh, set of discoveries, which have, which have showed that the universe began to exist a finite time ago. Um, and this mm -hmm. has been affirmed over and over again through various discoveries. People have tried to falsify it. And this Big Bang cosmological model, and there are different models um, in this in this in this vein. Um, but the universe began to exist, and so it needs a cause. So that argument has to do with there that there being a cause um, for the beginning of the universe. But there are others, like I said, which which don't, which just say suppose that the universe is past eternal. If it's still contingent, it still needs a ground and, and a being um, or something to account for it. Um, it, it, it could have mm. always existed from the past, so to speak, but because it's contingent, it still needs some explanation. So Thomas Aquinas was someone who um, didn't um, think that the, the Kalam cosmological argument, or it didn't go by the name of his time, wasn't as, wasn't as strong to his mind. But he argued for the existence of God um, through other other means. Um, um, so yeah, so it's just, I guess I would say it's helpful just to think of cosmological arguments as a family of arguments that are trying to mm -hmm. argue from features of the universe to a first cause or ground of being. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Let's talk through. So let's suppose for a moment that the universe did not begin, because mm -hmm. to me the the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, makes all the sense in the world. Mm -hmm. and I, I think it's it's easy for people to understand. Oh, absolutely, you can point to anything and and say it exists because something caused it to exist. Yeah, and therefore, you know, the spaceless, timeless m must be the ultimate cause be behind the existence of space and time. Mm -hmm. uh, totally easy to get. Yeah. Let's suppose for a moment though that the universe didn't begin. Let's say that it is. Uh, what's the term? Is it solid state? Is that uh, steady state? Kind of a, was a, was a model steady state proposed by uh, yeah. Fred Hoyle, who who uh, right. became more of an agnostic because of the fine tuning 
of the universe, uh, which is another argument maybe we could talk about later. But yeah, yeah totally. Space. I'd love to talk about fine tuning. Yeah. Okay. So let's assume that uh, the universe has always existed. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was Aquinas's argument, or what are the arguments for um, the existence of God if that is the case? Yeah. Well, he presents a number of arguments, um, um, cosmological arguments, and, and uh, you'll find that succinctly in his Summa Theologic, uh, Theologia, um, of which you could speak Latin. Um, <laughs> I probably butchered that, and I don't know exactly where it is. I'm not that big of a nerd, but uh, you know, I'm sure there are Thomists out there who would just know, know the, the reference off their heart. I'm sure if we had Gabe Finocchi on here, yeah, 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 here's the quote. So yeah, like I said, um, for someone like Aquinas, um, it just wasn't a problem if the universe was infinite in the past, because um, there are features of the universe which still need to be explained. If, if um, again, the the contingency of the universe, or another version for him was arguing from potentiality to um, what he would call um, pure act. Um, So it seems to be um, in all things a mixture of potentiality and actuality. Uh, This cup is sitting on the table. It has the potential Mm -hmm. to be destroyed um, or colored in a different way. Um, And that must exist in the object. Um, so this argument would argue that there must be a ground of actuality which sustains all possibilities or potentialities. And so that, that's, that argument is consistent with the universe being eternal. Um, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, th- I don't see it as a, as a problem. I, I do believe that the, uh, I think that the Kalam cosmological argument is a good argument. I think that the science is showing that the universe began to exist. So I would just say there's just a couple more arguments in our tool belt, so to speak. Um, right, right. I guess kind of where my head goes when it comes to arguing for the existence of God and therefore the co-eternal existence of the universe, mm-hmm. if indeed the universe never began, it, how would you separate – how would that not get you into something uh, – is it – panentheism or pantheism mm. that equates God with the existence of matter. Yeah. That God is in all those things. Yeah. So if God is, is the actuality that, that gives rise to all of the possibility, then he would have to be somehow, I don't know, uh, enmeshed in those things if they are co-eternal with one another. Yeah, no, that's, so that's, that's, that's great. That's a, that's a great observation. And I would say a couple of things. One, um, I'm talking about a generic theism. Um, so you're kind of coming in as right. a Christian and talking about, well, yes. what does the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo say about this? Or creation out of nothing. Isn't that biblical? Isn't that uh, a, a Christian doctrine? And yeah, I, I would say that that, would, that, that might push us to um, affirming that um, the universe did begin to exist. So I, I would say that, yeah, there are views of God um, which this isn't a problem for, but for a certain Christian theistic view, I, I would say, yeah, it's, it's, um, we would want to argue that the universe did begin to exist. So, um, yeah, I have no bone to pick there other than I believe that the universe began to exist. Yeah. Um, I was just curious what would be the, what would be the logical ramifications of, of that view, yeah. especially, and I might have it wrong. I mean, my conclusion could be totally incorrect. 
Um, but Corey, if, if Aquinas leaned to that, that's my, that's where I'm going. It, would it not have been because of his dependence on Aristotle? Well, so I should say that Aquinas affirmed that the universe did begin to exist. And a number right. of people did push back against Aristotle and some of the who, who thought that the universe was eternal. Um, and, so, and various Muslim theologians who um, affirmed the same thing. Um, and in fact, again, the Kalam argument came out of Muslim theologians who are more orthodox of will because they thought the Quran taught that the universe, began, that was part of what it meant for God to be a creator. And so they did argue against Aristotle that the universe did begin to exist a finite time ago. Um, so, Interesting. yeah, so yeah, that, so Aqu Aquinas though, um, thought that he didn't find that argument persuasive. So for him, it was an, right. uh, something of faith, if you will. Um, but he did think that there were good arguments for the existence of God, good cosmological right. arguments. But he just thought that one maybe wasn't the strongest. What were what were the holes that Aris, that Aquinas saw in in the Kalam cosmological argument? You know, that's a good question. It's okay, if you don't know, yeah, no, I'm not, head, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an Aquinas scholar, um, so I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, then let me rephrase the question. Then, what what are some of the holes that people see in that argument today? In the in the Kalam cosmological argument, yeah, like if we were to play devil's advocate, where, are there any? Is it watertight or what? Yeah, I mean, with all these arguments, you know, there are people constantly, it's just like an industry that people are writing papers to poke new holes. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's endless, you know, and sometimes it can get disingenuous, you know, it's like, really, you're mm -hmm. just going to bite the bullet and say that things can pop into existence uncaused. I don't know, things mm -hmm. get around, you know, from that. But can I, can I, can I interject sure. something? Um, I think, I think Corey's made a point, an interesting point at the beginning, which is, that, you know, a couple of generations ago, a theistic uh, viewpoint uh, was, uh, you know, ridiculed in the academic world of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the reason being that uh, uh, philosophy uh, and what he referred to as logical positivism is essentially what we would call materialistic mm -hmm. in nature. In other words, it states or assumes that the material world, the collection is just a collection of atoms mm -hmm. and there's nothing more than, than that mm -hmm. to it. And part of the downfall of it is if all a philosopher, uh, an atheistic philosopher who espouses his viewpoint, if he, he or she himself are nothing more than a collection of atoms, how could they come up with all of this wisdom? Mm. Uh, and, and that is part of the weakness of it. But the interesting mm. thing to me is that there's a line being drawn across, and, and I'd like Corey to tease mm. this out. He's already made a couple of allusions to it. Um, there's a line that is drawn between changes in the world of philosophy uh, as pertains to theology and its acceptance of a theistic and when we talk about theistic we're not necessarily talking about a christian viewpoint That's right. we're talking about the belief that a supernatural divine being exists yes. um and uh and and it's fine if we demonstrate that because that gives us a great foundation then <laughs> to flesh out you know the bible actually informs us who this being yes. is but um uh 
there's there's a line to me uh drawn from the changes in the 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 um uh dethronement of this materialistic mm -hmm. viewpoint mm -hmm. uh with developments in um physics astrophysics cosmology and so on uh which uh sir fred hoyle who used to debate c.s lewis in the second world war uh hoyle was the atheist and debating lewis and um and hoyle had uh a uh i wouldn't say unfortunately he didn't have a conversion but he had a conversion of sorts from being atheist to being agnostic or possibly even leaning toward theism. And he was one of the world's leading astrophysicists. Mm -hmm. And the reason he had the conversion was because of scientific evidence, mm -hmm. purely scientific evidence, because back then at that, he advocated that the universe was eternal. So did Einstein uh, because, and they did so. And I, I'll shut up in a minute, Dorian, <laughs> let you speak. But, uh, but Corey's been feeding me this literature, and I am I don't know yeah. uh, <laughs> and I, I'm reading it. But the um, uh, what I found interesting was that uh, scientific endeavor in the in the 20th century was based on a philosophy. Yes. This is why it's so important to link the philosophy with the science, yes. because philosophical materialism, the kind of stuff that Corey alluded to at the beginning which is that nothing exists above and beyond what our five senses can access. We're only a collection of atoms, et cetera. Um, that was a philosophical premise that led Einstein to commit what he described as the biggest blunder of his life. Mm -hmm. uh, he couldn't reconcile his uh, religious and philosophical views with the discoveries that he was making. Mm -hmm. And so he, cooked the books on his discovery to defend his view that the universe was eternal because he couldn't countenance the idea that the universe might have had a beginning mm -hmm. because as soon as you admit the universe has a beginning, the question arises, who created the it? The damn theologians were right. You know, they don't want, we're the scientists. We got to, we got to be pushing the button. We can't, we can't admit that. <laughs> and, and Hoyle was in the same boat but scientific discoveries uh, pushed the thing in, mm -hmm. a, in a different direction and to the point where even Stephen Hawking uh, um, un understood that the universe had a beginning. Mm -hmm. And then there was a desperate movement to explain how could, uh, given the universe as a beginning, which is now received wisdom, the Big Bang, everybody believes in it now. But Hoyle coined that term as a derisory term. It was a joke. Right. Who, who could imagine that? Now we realize and accept it. And so the question is, what do we do with it? Mm. So I think in a difference, the opening up of the, 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 the philosophy that lay behind this warped view of so it, it warped the science yes. it warped people's scientific understanding that philosophy is is weakened and and part of the reason it's been weakened is actually because of scientific discoveries mm -hmm. which have just well, it. it's just interesting too that at the end of the day everybody's acting in faith at some level so th their faith is in the idea that that matter is eternal and that materialism is is 
uh, uh, correct worldview. Mm -hmm. But they don't have any proof for that. That's just their presupposition from which they they go out from. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at the end of the day, Christianity is is going to involve some faith. I can't prove every aspect of what I believe yeah. to you, um, but that is true of every worldview. Yeah. I think that's important. So, anyway, I think yeah, there's a number of things there. I think. Um, Dave, you're bringing up a good point. And I would push this narrative back even further because a lot of people do need to have – I think it's very important, especially as Christians, to have a sense of the history of ideas because um, in our mm -hmm. context, we might look around and see a number of people and think, well, all the really smart people aren't Christians or whatever. But, but that and, – and, I, and I, as I said earlier, that's just simply not the case at all. Um, not true. But yeah. if we go back and we get a, a, an overview of the history of thought, we see that the greatest luminaries have been some form of theist. Um, maybe not a, a Christian view, but the, the materialistic view is really the most, what would you say? Um, lazy? Um, well, not, not lazy, but it, it, it hasn't been the majority view. Um, um, the majority of the great philosophers um, weren't materialists. And, and this debate goes right back to um, the uh, uh, to the Greek philosophers. Um, you had um, some of the pre-Socratics, like Thales and others, who argued that, well, everything must be made out of this ele element or another. Everything's water. Um, and then you had uh, the atomists like Democritus and Leucippus, who argued that everything was atoms in the void. Um, and uh, so thinkers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, who believe in some something like God, um, um, you know, as Christians, we could poke here and there, but they were not materialists. They believed that ultimate reality was spirit, spiritual, um, um, transcendent, um, this, this realm of transcendence, which all finite reality participates in and is moved by. Um, in him, we live and move and have our being. There, there's something more than the material world. It is not ultimate. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so that, that, goes, that goes right back to the beginning. So a lot of people don't realize that there are a number of erroneous philosophical ideas which have gripped and taken a hold of science. Um, there are a number of, of – of, I've been reading a number of these books, but um, non-Christian – I guess you would say they're spiritual religious people um, – um, We've written books like Science Set Free or Science and Spirituality, um, the latter being um, the work of uh, this uh, psych psychologist uh, in a major university in the UK. He's, he's um, and, and the former being uh, Rupert, a, a book by Rupert Sheldrake, who um, was a Cambridge trained uh, biologist. And they argue that science is held captive by what is called a mechanical picture of reality. So it's a kind of materialistic philosophy. Everything is rock bottom, a kind of mechanism. And um, so they argue that this, this science doesn't need this. And they list out, um, I'd have to get find the book, they list a number of propositions um, that are believed to be the case, taken on faith, if you will, by a number of people who are practicing, who aren't aware of this, people in the sciences, um, who aren't aware of this philosophical worldview and they take it for granted and it's it's just philosophically it's unnecessary um, and uh, the science as Dave pointed out in these fields whether it's cosmology or for me um, philosophy of mind and soul um, is a big thing and here's another one where where current um, scientific work is showing that we are more than our brains 
Um, so the science is, as well is, is starting to overturn that philosophy. So, yeah, I do think there is a faith component. I think a lot of people who are good in their domains as scientists are unaware of that, these larger worldview issues that Dave has mentioned. And I think as Christians, we need to be aware of that and articulate that and maybe not allow ourselves to get bullied by uh, a kind of presumption of authority, you know, um, and, and scientists speaking outside of their area of expertise. Mm-hmm. And a, the, in his uh, book, The Turn of the God Hypothesis, Dr. Meyer, uh, which you're more, more familiar with than I am, Corey, but he makes, he gives a potted history of modern science and points out that almost all of the scientists through the last few hundred years uh, have been either theists mm. or actual Christians. Absolutely. And that, uh, you know, I read, I, I, I wish I'd written it down, but I read a statement the other day uh, from uh, some prominent thinker that um, that uh, uh, the root of most progress in Western civilization uh, stems from the Reformation, mm. uh, you know, not the Enlightenment, but the Reformation, mm-hmm. because it was in the Reforma- Reformation that people were taught to read. Mm. Why were they taught to read? Because they so they could read the Bible. Mm. And uh, and uh, a biblical view of reality uh, is a view. It, it's logical, rational. It shows God as creator of an orderly mm-hmm. world. Absolutely. And the early, all the early scientists, people like Sir Isaac Newton and and great luminaries in the scientific world. Um, the reason there was scientific progress, which came from within the Christian mindset, was because of belief in a. It, the, the the Bible put forth of an orderly cosmos yes. that could be explained, yes. and it wasn't just all karma, as in you know, say Indian philosophy and religion, and, and inexplicable. Um, but it actually, uh, what you know, we, there was a structure and order which could be discovered. Yes. And um, I find it interesting that even modern, you know, cutting edge, if I could put it that way, apparently developments in modern science are moving in the direction of demonstrating a biblical world yes. in spite of the fact that most of the people aren't even theists themselves Absolutely. and like you said it's making some of them very uncomfortable if you know someone <laughs> said well you know almost like uh the bible got it right in genesis yeah yeah, yeah. if i could just um dwell on this i think this is so important Dave. and um i know we talked about some of the arguments for existence of god but there, and I'm not really an expert on those, but I do, I do find some of them are very compelling. But I find that there are background issues, which um, to me really uh, underscore my um, belief in God. And one of those is um, as I become more confident that science actually discloses or gets us truth, the more confident I am that there must be a transcendent intelligence. Um, for a number of the reasons you pointed out. Um, so, as you pointed out, historically, um, and, and this is simply a, a fact, one that even puzzled Marxist um, scholars, why did science emerge um, in, in Europe, in, in the place it did? Um, and it was because Christianity, the Judeo-Christian tradition, I should say, laid a number of, of of premises or um, um, presuppositions 
it, it gave it gave a worldview within which science could be birthed. And uh, you pointed out a number of those things. One that the universe is uh, a creation by a rational mind or or logos, which is an important word biblically and philosophically. Logos, wisdom, order, insight. Uh, in the beginning was the logos. Um, uh, this finite world is is created by a rational being or mind, and we are created in the image of likeness of this being. And we are here as stewards to, among other things, discover, um, to create culture, including science and civilization, to discover the world. So our minds mirror or participate in the divine uh, um, logos uh, or mind of God. And, and we can have faith to do science, um, um, confidence to do science. Um, but you got to ask yourself, it, it's a really bizarre, bizarre commitment that scientists have when they say things like, or they have uh, have a, this confidence that they can know the deep structure of things, um, mathematical structure that we can know that we can articulate the math involved in a black hole. How is it that um, you know evolved? Um, if we're just nothing but evolved monkeys, if you will, um, how is it that this local phenomenon of survival, survival of the fittest, came to produce beings like ourselves? That can, that can articulate and know the deep mathematical structure of the world, know this deep order. Um, there's a deep interconnectedness of things we should begin to see that our minds are, are, are able to reflect and penetrate. That, that, that was a Christian conviction. Um, so there are so, there are so many, um, um, faith commitments in, in science today that really are given a, a framework within, uh, Christianity. Um, and uh, let's let's say more about that sure. that example, if if we could, Corey, because um, you brought up evolution. Where where is the science at with that, and what is the Christian to say to uh, that whole topic? Yeah, um, I've spent a good amount of time studying evolution. I mean, that was one of the big issues that came up back in high school for me. A uh, big stumbling block. Um, it's important to understand at the outset there are different understandings of evolution so people say things like well it's a fact it's it's not a theory it's a fact well it depends what you mean by evolution um change over time of course we see this you can observe this you know finch well darwin observed finch beaks change cyclically um according to different environmental conditions um or we see fossils that of things that no longer exist and this might be a contentious topic among Christians, how old the earth is. I, I myself am an old earther and, and, uh, D David be the Bible guy. So, you know, he didn't want to talk to you on the, on the Genesis stuff, but, um, 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 it's, we have evolution in terms of change over time. And none of that should be problematic to Christians. None of that should threaten the doctrine of creation. I think the problem is with a Darwinian view, which says that there is no purpose and that these mechanisms of um, natural selection acting on random mutation can are truly creative and can produce all that we see in the biosphere. So someone like Richard Dawkins has called this the blind watchmaker hypothesis, um, that the design we see in nature isn't, isn't real. It's only apparent. Um, so I think that that is a problem for um, a Christian 
view of creation. But evolution in terms of gra- gra- gradual change um, or there being an old earth, that shouldn't be a problem. It's really the mechanism. Um, what is the driving force of this process? Um, so, yeah, we, we could get more into that, but, um, um, yeah, let's get, let go ahead, David. My, my understanding, uh, of the, of the debate is that, uh, Darwin's view is discredited, mm. uh, and most scientists, even those that aren't Christians or theists, have moved on from it, mm. uh, and uh, they're casting around for a replacement uh, because they're worried that if they don't come up with something to replace it, um, that you know, views of people like us are going to take over. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's the worry. So, that, that's that's the worry. But I know what what you know people need to hear. They're listening is. The classical view of evolution that's presented is Darwinian, Darwinian evolution. Corey's not, when Corey says evolution, he's talking about there can be change within a species. There can be change, incremental change, but not the kind of changes that Darwin proposed. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, that uh, the, this mysterious, the, the odds of, and Corey, you can address this, but the odds of the random natural selection is not an intelligent process yes. as Darwin presented it. It's it. What happens is that, you know, life throws up these quote unquote random mutations. So the atoms, you know, revolve around and, you know, like bingo, celestial bingo or something, <laughs> and something comes up and natural selection just intersects with this change of molecules and brings about a magical change. The, the problem is that the more people have studied, you know, molecular biology, uh, chemistry, uh, and even mathematical theory, um, the, uh, by uh, my understanding, Corey, if, if you can correct me, is that the, they've computed the odds of intelligent life mm-hmm. uh, forming out of not out of chaos, uh, out of random molecules over the 13.8 billion year history of the universe, the odds of life as we know it now, intelligent life, which is the three of us, very highly intelligent people uh, talking to each other, is the odds are astronomical. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are one it, one out of you know ten to the fortieth or eighty. It's, it's basically incalculable. Yeah, yeah. incalculable mm-hmm. odds that that the ran, the process that Darwin described could actually have happened, yes. mm-hmm. and so it didn't happen that way. And so if it didn't happen that way, the alternative has to be that life had this big head start, so to speak. And it can only be explained by an intelligent creator mm-hmm. who put all the conditions in place yeah. that have led to the existence of life as we know it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, a number of things to say. Um, yeah, Darwin's view, and, and his book is really one long argument for his theory of evolution. Because, of course, there have been various 
theories of evolution scientifically. And um, actually, evolution is a philosophy as well. And some of this has um, backdrops and, and, and just a kind of progressive outlook that was taking over Europe. Uh, um, mm-hmm. And things were inexorably progressing towards a certain end. So, so evolution is, all, is intertwined with philosophy as well. Any big worldview issues are going to start intersecting with philosophy. But yeah, Darwin's view was one one long argument that took in a number of things into consideration. But essentially, what he was arguing was that all life forms go back to a single, universal, common ancestor, um, and uh, that the, the driving force of the diversification of the biosphere is natural selection acting on randomly arising mutations. He didn't really know much about the the mutation stuff that that came later by. Gregor Mendel, who was a Catholic, <laughs> uh, com- a committed Catholic, uh, he laid modern view of genetics. But um, Darwin's view, you could sum it up as being um, um, kind of one big extrapolation, like a man jumping off a table, flapping his wings, and you know, then you say, "Well, that just a little bit more of that thing, and he, you can account for flight." You know, it's like it's kind of ridiculous. It's a huge <laughs> extrapolation. So, well, we have human breeders and. We can, you know, you know, breed dogs the way we like it. And so suppose that there is a, you know, a wild breed and uh, maybe the animal with the most fur survived the winters. And we extrapolate and we get a whole new dog. It's like, okay, well, that's one thing. But let's, but really everything in life. So minimally, I, I guess right. I want Christians to know that it, it, it's really a secular creation story. Um, and Darwin... There's a there's theology right. all throughout theology all throughout um, Darwin's Darwin's book um, anti theological arguments in this in a purely scientific book, but it's 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 minimally as any you you know you might read some of these people who have, who were journalists or even law professors who wrote written these books like examining Darwin and so forth. I can't think of their names on the top of my head, but just people who wanted to look at the evidence as a layperson, not as a biochemist, whatever. And they you just come away. Seeing that this is, it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a big faith commitment, and um, so. Uh, so let me, yeah, let me just ask there yeah. real quick. So when somebody says evolution is a fact, and and what they mean is that it is a fact that human beings arose from apes yeah. or a shrew or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, that 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 is in fact false. It is not a fact that human beings arose from some other life form. Um, well, that, that again is another Christian in-house Christian issue. I know there are some that want to argue for the special creation of mankind. I, as again, that, I don't think for you to be a theist and believe in creation that you need a first pair, a first human pair. So again, this is getting back. To no, me. I'm just asking, is it a, is it a scientifically oh. proven fact? Oh, no. That humans are no right no so that's a ridiculous thing to say yeah no it's definitely not um, and I know Will and Lynn Craig has written a big book on this it is a controversial book in uh, evangelical Christian circles but he minimally, yes I've he- I've heard of the controversy yeah but his whole <laughs> point is that modern science nothing in modern science undermines a historical Adam and Eve and so his his conclusion or point is modest but it's just not simply a fact. Um, so again, we see things changing over time. We see um, fossils um, of species that went extinct. Um, but um, this idea that 
Dar- Darwin's map, if you will, his over overarching view, his picture, his image, is simply not. It's not. A, it's not a fact. There are facts that he incorporates, um, of course. Sure. Again, Finch be exchanging inside and yeah. so forth. There's a lot of this, but to say that I don't think any sane person has any issue with adaptation yeah, over time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I think it is important to realize that. Well, again, if you don't believe. This is where the philosophy comes in. If you have excluded uh, belief in the creator, something like this has to be right. true. And this goes right. back to the yeah. atomists. Which comes back to faith. Yeah, it's a faith yeah. story. And this goes back to some of the atomists. They had an evolutionary story because it flows. You need – you can't just have things – it's too improbable to have something come into being from, from you know, all these things come together as Fred Hoyle gave this illustration of – you know, you're in a junkyard and a tornado goes through and you have a, a plane come out. So you need this gradual story of successive adaptation and modification. It has to be the case if you don't believe in a transcendent creator or intelligence. So, again, um, uh, as Christians, we have we have actually have freedom to look at the evidence and we shouldn't be worried about that. So I think it's important for you um, to be aware that, um, that 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 general story is simply not. Not not a fact, um, and we should have the confidence and right. to you know look at the evidence and make up our minds about that, and not get bullied into yeah. thinking that it's simply established. <laughs> right, right. May right. I add real quick here, uh, Jake? Um, just yes, a point please. of um, please, because some people might be like, "Oh, well, Corey, you're 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 a philosopher and theologian." Maybe I shouldn't say I'm a philosopher. I have degrees in that. Maybe that's uh, uh, too lofty. Um, but you. Know, you're, you're not a scientist. Well, um, people need to be aware of the fact that there have been a number of high-profile um, conferences um, at, at the Royal Society and in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. The last, one of the last Royal Society meetings, which was something started by Sir Isaac Newton or something that Newton himself attended. So it's very prestigious. Had some of the leading thinkers in evolution come. And it was all about, as David pointed out, um, the fact that the Darwinian story has not explained a number of very important things like the not just that there you know are various breeds of dogs, but where did you get the dog body plan from or where how do you account for fundamental animal body plans themselves or the origin of mm-hmm, life mm-hmm. or all of these things um, and so they they just admitted um, that that the standard Darwinian story is simply inadequate. Um, to account for these things. So these are, none of them are, well, there might have been a few Christians there, but this was not a Christian, this wasn't an intelligent design conference. This was a Royal Society meeting where some of the leading thinkers came and just expressed their bewilderment or they were proposing alternative mechanisms or ideas. But the point is that this, that this Darwinian view really is crumbling um, at the, at the mm-hmm. height. So just as we're having a renaissance in philosophy with regards to religious epistemology and arguments for God. And we're now seeing um, the crumbling of uh, the Darwinian view um, in uh, um, through just non-Christian mm-hmm. thinkers um, who are just admitting mm-hmm. that we, we need, we need to account for this. Like this, this view is just not doing it. Um, so that's pretty big and it's not well known. It is big. Right. What- Would it be accurate, Corey? Well, I've got it straight that uh, Stephen Einstein and later Stephen Hawking, who developed Einstein's thinking further, um, 
came to the conclusion that the universe could not have existed without some kind of intelligent input into it. Um, but because uh, uh, Hawking, for instance, uh, was reluctant to, um, I'm putting it mildly, was reluctant to entertain the idea of Judeo-Christianity being correct. Um, he, uh, but he had to come up with an explanation now. Mm. The universe has a beginning. Uh, the fine-tuning, and maybe you can get into that, but the, the fine-tuning, uh, the set of conditions that had to be in place for the universe to generate life as we know it today was so highly improbable. The odds, not just for one, but for, you know, I don't know, 10, 15, or 20 different conditions were so extraordinarily improbable uh, that Hawking came to the conclusion in his PhD thesis and, and beyond that, um, and in collaborative work with some of the top minds in Britain at the time, uh, that, um, that there was an intelligence behind the construction of the universe, but because he couldn't entertain the idea of the biblical account being true for religious and philosophical reasons, not scientific reasons, he proposed that the origin of this intelligence must have come from alien life <laughs> or other. Yes. <laughs> oh, but this is, people laugh at it. Directed panspermia. Actually... That's the view. And it, it sounds like out of a five. Sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> directed, directed panspermia. panspermia? And that, that's right out of a sci fi movie by the sounds of it. But yeah, it's. It, it, like... That's almost as bad as the theological term interpenetration yeah, yeah. that I talked yeah. about with David yeah. and Chris the other day. It's a similar, it's similar idea. Yeah. But you. you laugh at it but i mean I, this is actually serious this is the alternative that is being presented by um cosmologists yeah. who are who who have an extreme aversion to a biblical point of view but right. who understand that it you know there had to have been a, a creative intelligence behind the universe as it stands today at the moment of its inception, 13.8 billion years ago, yes. that put in all of these improbable conditions. Um, and so what is the, uh, where does it come from? And I just think this is ridiculous. Here are these highfalutin intellectuals who make mockery of us. So I've just come from Tennessee down the road from where the Scopes monkey trial was. And we have been made mock, mockery of for nearly 100 years, you know, since, since that event took place. And yet now it turns out that, you know, we were right and Darwin was wrong. And the people that are opposing us are now proposing that aliens were behind all. <laughs> well, because they evolved. So that's OK. <laughs> we just we passed. Either that or they're positing some kind of like multiverse. Yeah scenario well, where the uh, the likelihood of one universe producing intelligent life is low but if we're just one universe of lots and lots and lots of universes well then maybe the chances are, are higher which of course and that's scientific because where did they come from yeah so it's it, it just it's just backing up the problem one more step. the buck you know we 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 were seated here by aliens like prometheus well where those aliens come from well they i don't know they evolved mm -hmm. so okay so we're just we're we're not explaining it <laughs> Um, so again, that's the, that's the, that's the, this is, this is what people are actually saying in high scientific circles. Some people are saying, yeah, that. oh yeah. They, um, um, there are people who, who have 
um, speculated with these things, of course. I think it was uh, might have been Francis Crick or James Watson, one of the discoverers of the structure of DNA, um, who who toyed with directed panspermia. So um, yeah, they they played around with it. Um, I don't want to say that it's established, but they again anything to get away from what the evidence is is pointing towards. Uh, um, if it's an evolved alien race, that's fine, but it can't be. The prime reality. It can't be an intelligence. Intelligence can't be fundamental. Which again, mm-hmm. getting back to how we think about science, it's like, okay, so um, that's a real problem for you. Um, it, that that intelligence is fundamental um, to reality. Um, that should give you more cause to be science. But I think it it becomes a faith thing. People don't want there to be God and. And and this goes right back to the Greeks as well. People who are trying to flee God. Um, God probably doesn't exist. So get on with your life. That's that was Epicurus. Don't worry about the gods. Their gods were pretty right. nasty, though. It wasn't you know the God who who loved us and sent His Son for us and you know right. gives Himself. So maybe you would want those gods uh, to be done away with. But it, it, they don't want God to exist. And some thinkers mm-hmm. are quite candid. Someone like Thomas Nagel himself. Brilliant philosopher said, I don't want there to be a God. I just don't want to live in that world. This divine authority right. problem. So, yeah. As someone who is, uh, you, you think philosophically a lot about, you said, the human soul. Mm-hmm. Um, d- does that mean that you, th- do you spend a bit of time thinking about other arguments for the existence of God, like moral arguments? Yep. Or, okay, maybe we could... Um, Start start to land our plane going down that avenue. Sure, sure. Because I, I find those arguments uh, absolutely compelling, maybe even more compelling than uh, the cosmological category. Yeah, and I agree with you, Jake. I again, you um, some of these things. The, the arguments can be presented simply, like you said, like the clumps, pretty simple, three premises. You know, but you can go pretty in depth with them, and so. I haven't spent a lot of time recently looking at the arguments for the existence of God. Um, uh, maybe some of the ones that Craig spends a lot of time on, um, mm-hmm. per se. Um, I guess the moral argument would be an exception because that's one I've spent time on. But um, I, I find that there are a number of other considerations which um, um, uh, affirm the reality of God more so. So um, religious experiences are a huge one for me. Um, I've mm-hmm. spent, I spent a lot of time uh, doing my second master's looking at religious and mystical experience. And I've simply gotten to the point where, um, you know, enough people would be like, you're getting all these reports about this faraway country, like people going to the new, the new world before we had North America. And you put all these reports together and it's like, they, there's too many reports. There has to be this body of land. So to me, you know, um, reading, you know, Lots and lots of different forms of real experience. That's become a, a um, very important reason for um, uh, for believing God myself. Um, but um, considerations from consciousness, that to me is extremely powerful. And I could, I'll put it quite simply uh, for the audience. Um, if in the beginning, as Dave said, you have matter and energy in the void, um, you have atoms which stand in external relations to one another. And if you have this causal story where those atoms um, come together into more complex structural aggregates, 
um, over time, you're going to get more and more complicated structures of the same kind, right? Um, but then at some point in, mm-hmm. in time, I mean, we're we're sitting around. I mean, I'm at least aware that I'm conscious. I don't know about you guys. At least I, I'm I'm aware that I'm conscious and thinking. Um, but we got consciousness where we're aware of things. There, what philosophers would call qualia, so the what it's like or the feel of something, that that what it's like to have experience of pain, to be aware of the color red. That doesn't seem to be identical to a neuronal state firing in your brain, a C fiber firing. Mm-hmm. So consciousness seems to be this thing which is radically different from the material world. So how did we get something from nothing? How did we get something qualitatively different? A logical, like take a, a mm. series of thoughts, like if P, then Q, P, therefore Q. These, th- these thoughts are different than uh, brain states um, because – This is what you meant earlier when you said that science is discovering we're more than a brain. Well, I would say these are philosophical considerations, but there are important empirical discoveries which reinforce I- – I'm what you would call mm-hmm. a substance dualist. So I believe that we're – and this is – well, you, you could argue that the biblical view is tripartite, uh, body, soul, and spirit. But the biblical view is that we are not simply material. Um, so I right. believe that we are um, not just have a soul but are souls um, mm-hmm. and our souls are embodied or inform our bodies. Um, and in that soul are various com- um, um, drawers, so to speak. So think of it like a chest of drawers. Mm-hmm. And so you have different powers within the soul and so there can be um, grades of soul i think animals have soul souls i think anything where the whole is ontologically more fundamental than the parts the, the whole organism if you will or substance is more fundamental you have a soul and this goes right back to aristotle himself Deanima. um so i there are grades of souls and so we have certain capacities um, that the animals don't. Um, but but those are philosophical considerations. I think they're very strong, and I think they should inform the science. Or I think they're more, what would you, more compelling or authoritative than the uh, scientific considerations. Um, um, which is which is an important thing to point out because I think in our in our day and age where we we point to science or go to the science immediately, it is important to realize that philosophy can have independent and authoritative considerations for something. So um, the nature of consciousness being non-physical and that we are souls and are not merely physical, I think, uh, are one of those important considerations from philosophy. But if I could just get back to the argument real quick quick and then maybe I'll, I'll turn it back to you for some clarification um we're trying to account for how we got aggregates of atoms coming together um in greater structures and we're getting something out of nothing consciousness which can think and do science how do we explain that and to me quite simply without making it too complicated if in the beginning was logos or spirit as hebrew says what is invisible comes from the invisible if we have something like consciousness at the root of reality, it's not a problem to explain how we get finite versions of that later on um, as God creates us in his image. It, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be odd for a Christian view of things as to how we would get conscious agents later on because that is fundamental to reality. Whereas in the materialistic view, again, you have this problem of how do we get this thing which is so radically different from what the prime reality is supposed to be, namely matter and energy atoms in the void 
um, bumping around with no real telos or purpose or conscious awareness. Yeah, how does, uh, uh, by the way, Jake has lost power, and uh, uh, you, you'd think he was Pentecostal, <laughs> I'd have some power, but anyway, he's he's lost power. This happened last week because of the, all the terrible weather. Oh, really? California. So we, we've got to keep persevering here until he reappears. It is still recording? I fed it's still recording, and we're just fine, so we just keep okay. going, and, uh, and, and he's getting going to get back on, so... Uh, um, it's like when, you know, Einstein's theory, relativity, the E was MC squared. Um, and all, but that's very simple, but actually all the profound truth behind it and all the multiple thousands of equations and so on that he had to work through to get to that. Um, it involved energy and mass is his, um, his equation. But the question is, how did a random bundle of energy and mass, which would be Einstein's brain, manage to transcend the random placing of atoms and energy within his physical being yes. to come up with a profound understanding of truth? And, you know, where does just things like where do things like um, our understanding of beauty come from that we, you know, we understand that the Rocky Mountains uh, um, display a, a splendor or a beauty, whereas the local sewage disposal plan doesn't, you know, uh, like, but we think about that. We take that for granted, mm -hmm. don't we? Mm -hmm. But where did that come mm -hmm. from? Like, where did that arise? What did a, why would a random coming together of atoms, if that's all we are, why would it tell people across the world that the Rocky Mountains display beauty, whereas the sewage disposal plant does not express beauty. Mm. You know, where's that come mm -hmm. from? It's the kind of thing you're saying, isn't it? And, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, those kind of considerations are relevant. Y you know, they're, they are relevant and, and, and they should count for something mm -hmm. because it's common sense apart from anything yeah. else, I think. And uh, would you say that, uh, uh, would you say that modern, would, would you say that modern science, uh, modern secularistic science, because there's a difference between science and what I call scientism, which is mm -hmm. a philosophy that, the world uh, is nothing more than material in nature, that God doesn't exist and everything has natural causes. That is not a scientific analysis. That is a philosophical statement. Correct? Am I correct? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But, but what is presented to us by people who advocate that is that that is a scientific statement. Yeah. They don't admit it's actually a philosophical point of yeah. view. When you alluded to the fact of evolution being philosophical in, in nature, and it absolutely was. It didn't go back to Darwin. It went back to Hegel, who was, you know, a, a preeminent philosopher who developed an idea of, of the evolving, ever upward evolving nature of human history. Mm -hmm. um, 
And in the 19th century, it was all progress and things are getting better and all the rest of it. And Darwin just took that philosophical idea and applied it to biology. Karl Marx took it and applied it in a different way to politics. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a philosophy. And of course, it was an untrue philosophy mm -hmm. because if history was evolving upward and upward and upward, then in the 20th century, we would never have had Adolf Hitler in the Holocaust. And now we've got Putin, you know, yeah. and so it doesn't look like things are actually getting better. Yeah. You know, they may, in fact, be getting worse. Yeah. Um, so that's all by the by today. I mean, people people are not advocating, uh, you know, we hope things may get better, but, you know, uh, but Dar but Darwin's, you know, theory was philosophically based. And one of the things that has to be said today, and as Christians, we, we can take confidence in the fact that, you know, science itself is neutral. Hmm. Science just means knowledge. It's, it's neutral. It's how do we, it, scientific discovery is neutral in nature, or it should be. It's just a set of facts. It's a set of data. And how do we interpret those data? And if you choose to come at the data from a religious or philosophical presupposition, then at least you should be honest enough to say, I'm just not neutral here. I am actually coming from a philosophical presupposition, religious mm -hmm. presupposition, which is atheism, which is that atheism has got nothing to do with science, mm -hmm. e even though they say athe atheists equal a scientific viewpoint. Oh, atheist, yeah. <laughs> atheism is if it, it is as much a statement of faith or theology yeah. or, you know, philosophy that as, as Christian belief. Yes. You know, Dave, yeah, I, I, it is important to work through these things, but I've gotten to a point where the science religion thing is just, it is not an issue whatsoever. And I meet people in this, well, what about science and faith or science and religion? It's just, it's not a problem once you work, work through the issues. Um, um, generally. Um, so I think you're right. Um, science, and to be on, honest, like, I, I don't even think it's right to say that there is a thing called science. I think there are sciences. There is no single method of science. There are methodologies. Uh, there are, um, you could break science up into two domains, largely the historical sciences and the experimental sciences. And what they're about is very different. Um, so in the experimental, you might be doing things repeated over and over again, things that you could reproduce. Um, you know, like you drop a ball over and over again and, you know, uh, bring out, uh, try to articulate that through a mathematical equation like Newton did. Um, now that's still leaving a number of things out. You have a formal explanation. You have a mathematical formula, but you still haven't explained that causally. So that's only one dimension. And then you have things like historical sciences, which might involve things that you can't reproduce. They're singular or unique, um, like forensic science, you know, like a certain murder. Um, there were, uh, you know, unique people involved, um, maybe some things that were pretty wild or out there that you couldn't just repeat um, identically. Um, and, of course, not that event or the Big Bang itself. Uh, we can't put that in a test tube. We can't, you know, we'll reproduce the results like you know that's that's a high level historical theory which is trying to make sense of um which is trying to it looks at data or or features of the world and tries to explain them through 
an inference to the best explanation? What explains these things that are now in existence? What do we postulate that would explain that? So the, there is no thing called science. There are sciences and different methodologies. And I think it's important because so long as we think that there is this thing called science and it's insular and there's something called philosophy or theology, you know, these things are deeply interconnected. And we're not going to be able to have an integrated view of things or even a university, a university, um, a curriculum where things are connected if we think that things are that segregated. Um, so um, it's not as if I don't think you can point out certainly as being science. But again, um, when push comes to shove, I think it's 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 simply uh, incorrect to say that there is this one thing called science or this one thing called the scientific method itself. Um, well, my faith has been rewarded. Hey guys, how's it going? Yeah, good. Good to have you back. <laughs> I don't even know what happened. Our whole building just lost power again. That's the second week in a row. Oh, geez. Someone doesn't want this conversation to keep going, I guess. It's the <laughs> devil. It must be. Uh, Jake, before you close this out, uh, I want to make one pitch here, which is there. there are, you know, we're we're having this discussion because followers of Jesus, people like Plantinga and Wallerstork, great reformed people. Of course, I'll put that plug in. But, um, <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's no accident because reformed theology teaches that you know the kingdom of God goes to every sphere. Uh-huh. But um, they, amen, animals, pioneers, mm-hmm. and uh, people like Corey have invested years of their life. He's got degrees from several institutions, including the, the highly prestigious University of Toronto, from which I myself have two degrees. That's why I say it's highly prestigious. <laughs> but um, I want to make a pitch here to people that are listening to be, you know, a friend of mine said to me when I was a young Christian, we have no fear of truth mm-hmm. as Christians. Pursue truth wherever it leads because it will lead to the one who is the way, the truth, and the Amen. life. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we need to stick our head in the sand and be afraid of the big, bad, you know, evolutionary people or uh, other whatever is boogeyman out there, postmodern, cancel culture, etc. We need to be aggressive in getting into these yes. things. And if there's people listening, you know, let me encourage you. Uh, if you want to reach out to Corey, you can contact him through Jake or myself. You know, for some encouragement in pursuing the kind of things that he's been doing. Maybe there's Christians out there that want to pursue higher degrees in science and some, you know, let's get out there. Let's invade the academy. Yes. Don't, don't cop out. Yes. Don't, you know, become a holy huddle. And and don't segregate your faith no. either. Don't sort of say, well, I'll be one thing, you know, in my scientific view, but I'll keep my religious faith on the side. No, don't do that. Uh, don't be afraid of of uh, bringing your perspective in because the fact of the matter is that we believe that the picture the word of God presents Bible isn't a science book, but it presents a picture of truth. Ultimately, if it is true, it will be validated by scientific discovery. And I strongly believe that that is actually what we're seeing unfolding in front of our eyes in a way that has never before occurred in history. And I think it's mm-hmm. absolutely extraordinary. The discoveries that have been made in the last decade, two, three decades are validating a biblical worldview in 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 a sense that has never been possible before. And some preeminent scientists who are not even Christians have said exactly that. Professor Lennox of Oxford in his book, 
the in in his books refers to I think the Natural History Museum in London, which I visited with my grandchildren, so the greatest natural history museum I think in the world. The director of it wrote a book called The Genesis Enigma, saying, you know, how is it that Genesis one got it right? You know, man's not a Christian; he's an evolutionary mm-hmm. biologist. So I'm just saying this is a pitch for Christians to get out there and and pursue truth and be aggressive. And uh, anyway, uh, mm-hmm. here ends the lesson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yes, and if anybody can live with an integrated worldview, it is Christians. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think the naturalists are are participating in is is a a disjointed life from what they believe. So you believe that we are nothing but uh, atoms, just material beings, and yet you still go home and kiss your wife and say you love her. What is that? What is love? That's you're just experiencing some chemical reaction in your brain. If you're nothing more than a brain, mm. nothing more than than the material. Um, whereas we get to live and we actually believe in something called love, not not in the sense that it's our 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 neurons firing, but that God is the originator of love. And so we can live. I just use that as an example to say that we we can live with an integrated view of life. And surely uh, can pursue truth into every sphere that it takes mm. us, and and be confident that it's going to point us back to the existence of God. Amen. And yeah, let's. I would just encourage uh, listeners, like Dave has, as well. Um, we we, as, as Christ said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And um, at times, I can get a bit frustrated by the landscape in which we live because I think. We are living at a time when belief in God or the transcendent um, is so powerful. And we've talked about a number of things in the sciences, from astrophysics, cosmology. Um, I mentioned some of the um, stuff having to do with consciousness. Uh, We talked about evolution. Um, uh, A big one for me has been something like near-death experiences, um, which um, has in this field led a number of atheists or agnostics to become some form of theists because um, the evidence suggests that there is life after death. And not only that, but people have experienced God through this experience. Um, so to me, um, it's just right for, for Christians and thinkers to get out there and to push back and to overcome the secular, materialistic, epicurean um, cosmos and to see that um, we live in a universe which is beautiful and orderly and participates in, a, in, 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 in the being of God. Um, and that truth, beauty, and goodness is fundamental. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I would just encourage, encourage Christians to get out there and, and, and do their best because, uh, yeah, we don't have to live in fear. The, the, the evidence and the considerations of science really is on our side. Um, and so I, I'd like to see some of, uh, some of that get pushed back and um, mm-hmm. things turned into culture. Um, yeah. Great. Well, Corey, maybe we can have you back again at some point in the future to have you talk more about those uh, uh, mystical or near death experiences that you're describing. Mm-hmm. And um, cause that, that certainly seems like something worth doing. Absolutely. Into. I'd love to talk about that and particularly, um, uh, in the context of, of Christianity as well, in terms of what Christianity would have to say about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, 
but super interesting and awesome. Corey, if people do want to reach out to you or engage with your thoughts more, is there anywhere they can find you online, even if it's just your social media handle or something like that, if they want to DM you? Yeah, of course. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Corey Stevenson, just uh, look for this face. Uh, <laughs> or you can uh, message me, um, uh, email me, uh, uh, corestep, C-O-R-E-S-T-E-P at gmail.com. Feel free to do so. I consider myself a reference, um, a resource guy more than anything. I know Dave mentioned that. I love getting people in touch with good books and, and trying to find the best resources for people to get in and start studying and thinking through things themselves. So if anyone wants help or uh, direction in that, just feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to help you out and encourage you and put some good material in your hands. Wonderful. All right. Well, you guys just got the open invite to bombard Corey's inbox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll see if he ends up regretting that. Um, yeah. Anyway, Corey, thank you so much for coming on today, man. We really, really do appreciate it. And uh, thank you all for listening. We really appreciate you guys continuing to engage with our thought. We love doing this podcast. Please do go subscribe to our YouTube channel, Good Theology. Rate and like the show. It helps us out a ton. And of course, thank you so much to Dwell Bible for sponsoring today's episode. God bless you, everybody. Bye-bye.